0: Good morning. morning. Finally got some fall temperatures. Yeah, a little chilly. Uh, Speaking of fall, the fall fellowship, I just want you to know one of my favorite parts will be the fried chicken and the barbecue. So that's coming and um, uh, really fun stuff. Remember that surprise I've been been promising. You're going to love it. You're going to thank me. You're going to say, Jeff, you're the best. And uh, <clears throat> I will say it, I will say to you, say it louder, right? Um, but in a serious note, uh, I do need some fire pits. So if you have a portable fire pit, come see me afterwards. Uh, I want to bar it for the fall fellowship. Can we do that? Okay. Um, I want to uh, recommend a book to you that I bought in seminary. Just because I read it in seminary, bought it from their bookstore. It was for one of my classes. It's not a deep, it's not a hard to read, so don't think that, but I bought it 23 years ago. It's been one of the most impactful books on my own personal spiritual growth that I've ever read. It's called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by one of my professors, Donald Whitney. And the topics include things like uh Bible intake, prayer, worship, evangelism, serving, stewardship, fasting, silence and solitude, journaling and learning and persevering in the disciplines. Uh, this book has shaped me as much as anything. And I want to encourage you in light of our text this morning <clears> to <throat> that, that to be a supplementary supplementary reading for you. We gotta be great readers. So Hopefully that will encourage you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. As we continue in this travel narrative from the end of Luke nine through 19, we've titled this series, The Road Less Traveled because if you've noticed over the last three or four sermons, we're learning as Christians to not live like those who don't know Jesus. It is a road less traveled, but it is a much better road. And so this morning we come to our text in Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, here's what I know, and I think you know intuitively. We, as humans, if we struggle with anything, it is with our priorities. We struggle with priorities as easy as blinking our eyes. Not with me if there's a tension there with you. And because this Universal struggle, the topic of prioritizing our lives, has become a big money business. Just go to your local bookstore, take a look on self-improvement or some kind of business topic and you'll see books like Organize Your Day, Take Back Your Time, Jumpstart Your Priorities. Thousands of seminars are held around the world each year. You got blog posts, you got vlogs, you got podcasts. Everybody, everybody has an opinion on what's most important. What is the main thing? Well, this morning, I'm glad to announce that the one who made us humans, therefore knows how we flourish and how we work best, speaks clearly on this subject of priorities, of how to make first things first. He leaves no doubt about what it means to make first things first and i think it's so needed for us so relevant relevant for us in our fast-paced world that is only getting faster that word priority is really a form of the word prior which means what comes before everything else or what is supreme or foundational to everything else what is the first thing i'll ask you as a church what is the first thing that comes before all other things as a Christ follower. Now, don't answer out loud. Just think of how you may answer that question. Would it be family, church, witnessing, loving God, loving our neighbor, giving, living in community, service, worship, the list could go on and on. Well, I'm thankful this morning that David and Paul and ultimately Jesus in our text speaks to this. Listen to what David says as he, he gives us this hint of where we're going this morning, this this preview, if you would. He says in Psalms 127, 4, One thing, there's our term. Have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Paul put it this way in Philippians 3. He used words like, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says that in the other phrase, that I may know him and that I may become like him. Here's our phrase, but one thing he says, one thing I do, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So Jesus is gonna speak to that one thing that David hints at and Paul speaks to in Philippians three. I was relieved to know that David, Jesus, and Paul all thought the same thing. Aren't you relieved to know that? To no surprise. So, here's what else I know about the Christian life. If if you're just honest, if we're being truthful, if we're being transparent, it is full of challenges and frustrations and real life struggles. If we are chasing hard after Christ, which I've described to my children as struggling well, some of us say we're struggling. No, we're not struggling. We're just doing whatever we want to do. (laughs) That's our struggle. But if we're really struggling well, then you and I feel this tension between what the spirit wants us to do and what our flesh wants us to do. So here's the deal. I know that we learn and relearn over and over what it means to trust Christ and walk with him closely. So all that that takes place, I'm thankful for a text that is just simple. I'm a simple guy. I know that surprises many of you. My wife says, no, you're actually pretty complex. Not very smart, but complex, right? But I love these kind of texts that just simplifies for us the core of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what a disciple of Jesus is supposed to be about. Now, that's the good news. We have a simple text. It's going to be really clear. We're shooting one bullet out of a rifle, not a shotgun this morning. But the bad news is this, if you miss this morning, if you don't get this morning, if you don't apply this morning, you're gonna miss everything else in the Christian life because whatever comes first informs everything else. So let's read this very famous story of Martha and Mary, Luke 10, 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister, excuse me, called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But the one thing is necessary. There's our phrase. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Let me give us a little context as a way of reminder this morning. In Luke nine fifty one, we saw where Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem to die. Remember that? And we're still in that travel narrative, as I said this morning. And Luke reminds us in verse 38 of that. We'll see that continually through chapter 19. And he uses the phrase, now as they were on their way. We also are in the last six months timeline of Jesus's life. And and in this last six months up to chapter 19, the focus is really on Jesus teaching his disciples. In some ways, his disciples are in their last semester school under the great professor before he departs. Last week we saw Remember, context is right before and right after a passage. Last week we saw the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the big point there was that God used that text to tell us to decimate any goodness in ourselves, any trust, decimate any trust or goodness in ourselves. So here's what Luke does right after that to destroy all trust and goodness in ourselves in terms of how we might think of ourselves, Luke drops this little five-verse story in to show us if we can't trust the goodness of ourselves, who can we trust? Our text answers that question this morning. So let's look first <clears throat> at Martha <clears throat> Excuse me, and Mary. It's a very familiar story. You got two sisters. It's only found in the book of Luke, nowhere else in the Gospels. And the text doesn't tell us which village they entered. But we know which village because we go to John chapter 11 and John 12, and we see that the village is the town of Bethany. And we see that Martha and Mary are the sisters of who? Lazarus. Yes, So we're about two miles now east of Jerusalem. And what Jesus is doing is he is crisscrossing back and forth between all these little towns and villages that he had originally sent the 70 out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And he's doing that as he makes his way to his final destination of Jerusalem to be killed. And we also know that later on he would come back to Bethany and he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And at that point, At that point, everything changed. You may remember in John, it tells us that when he raised Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders lost their minds. And they said, even the Jews are beginning to believe that he's the Messiah. And they made a decision to kill him at that point. John records this as if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That's our context. Now, I also want to think, I wish I had a button I could push on each of you, right on the forehead. And I could do a printout of what you thought, what went through your mind and heart when I was reading that text. This is the kind of passage that is almost impossible not to have a reaction to. Especially maybe if you're a woman, especially if you're a Martha type, whatever that is. I think we, a lot of us can identify with Martha where she is trying her best to serve and we might sort of want to defend her. Or we might be curious, what is really going on here? Or, or what did Jesus really mean in verse 42? So whatever you thought, there is no doubt that there is a spiritual condition in the heart of Martha that is being challenged by Jesus. There is something in the heart of Martha that needs to change. The text is clear here. So let's not minimize it. Let's not deflect it. Let's not act like it's not a big deal. There's something in her heart that needs to be dealt with And I believe there's also something in our heart, a spiritual condition that's very similar, if not just like Martha's, that needs to be dealt with. Jesus is going to do that. So this morning, there's a negative challenge in some ways in our text, but there's also something that's very positive, something to turn to, something to turn away from, and something to turn toward. And it's this one thing which is to be our priority. So verse 38, Martha, she's the older sister. She welcomes Jesus, the text tells us, and probably uh, a handful or maybe 10, 12, 15 people in her home. She's happy to have them. We know she's a believer. Verse 40, we see that she calls Jesus Lord And her goal was to serve this group of people and Jesus himself well, to to prepare potentially a meal for them and be hospitable to them. Luke in verse 39, Luke then introduces to us Martha's sister Mary. And even though we don't know anything about her, what we see in this text, what we'll see is she clearly becomes an example for us in our own Christian experience as she sits at the feet of Jesus and listens to his teaching. Now she's sitting at his feet, which is in their culture, which was a taboo thing. Women were to sit at the back and learn. So Jesus continues as we look at his life, continues to break cultural norms. He just does what's right. As she sits at his feet, with intense interest to not miss a single word that comes off the lips of Jesus. Now, I think we know as parents, we've all probably done it at least once. But we know better, I think, than to compare child to child. To say to your one child, can't you be more like your That really doesn't go well. If you're doing it, stop it, (laughs) right? But in some ways, Jesus is doing something like that here. He's Jesus, so he can do things, and he's, he's not doing it with an intention to shame, but to take advantage of an opportunity to instruct Martha, and ultimately us, about something that is very, very important. He he is doing it because he cares so much for Martha. I want you to get this, that he is willing to be vulnerable and risk their relationship in order that he can help her not miss the one thing that is necessary. Verse 40, the phrase, but Martha, but Martha, really tells us to pay attention. It says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. That word distracted means her heart and mind were being dragged away by other concerns with much serving. It's a word picture in the New Testament of someone being kidnapped and kicking and screaming as they go, that her mind and heart was being literally kidnapped from her and being drug away from what was good. Her heart and mind is being pulled away from something about her concerns for other things. Now here's what we know. We know that the Bible teaches very clearly there is nothing wrong with serving others, right? It's part of what we do as believers. We know the Bible Teaches there's nothing wrong with preparing a meal and being hospitable and feeding others who are in your home. But what's happening here is there's a myth being shattered for them and for us. And the myth is this that busyness equals Christian faithfulness, that busyness equals godliness. That myth needs to be shattered. Verse 40, Martha says is distracted. Her distracted mind and heart now reaches a point where she no longer can contain it, and she erupts. Look, there's a lot been going on in her, and she's been churning inside. And we always say, Phil Herndon taught me this phrase, if you don't let it out, you will act it out. And here she reaches her boiling point and explodes. Her twisted anger and attitude turns on Jesus. Now, when I read that, that's Scooby-Doo moments for me. Ro, <laughs> She confronts the Lord Jesus. Some of us that's confronted the Lord Jesus, he's big enough to handle it and he's gonna handle it here well. She says to him, Lord, hold on a minute. Do you not care? I get nervous just, just saying that. It's a graceless indictment on Jesus and yet we know from John, from the book of John, that she was the one who ran to Jesus when her brother Lazarus was nearly dying, crying and weeping and screaming and begging that Jesus would come, heal her brother. If you and I, if that were happening to you and I, I can see myself in the flesh saying, what you asking me about? I thought you said I didn't care earlier. Thank goodness Jesus is not like me, but she lost it. She's saying, Jesus, are you going to just sit there and keep telling about the great kingdom of God, about the eternal joys, about the life transformation of the gospel and those who trust in you and ignore the fact that the table is not set, there's taters to chop and we run out of goat's milk? Seriously, Jesus? Jesus? Do you not care, Jesus, that my sister left me to do all the work alone? I know that you were all-knowing. But do you know that I burnt the bread because I had so much to do and forgot it was in the oven? And then, look, it just gets worse. Then she, she commands the God of the universe to tell Mary, To help her. What's wrong with Martha? Martha's got issues. Martha's got problems. Before we condemn Martha, I think it is wise that we ask ourselves a couple questions. What is it about our lives that is like Martha? What twisted priorities keep us from sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing the very words of God spoken at him, from him? Just ask yourself that question. Today, this week, this month. So we move from this little thing between Martha and Mary, and then we go to, I want to dig into, go deeper with this one thing that is necessary. Let's unpack that. And before I do, I want you to notice in verse 41, how Jesus responds. He says, Martha, Martha. Putting those two names together like that is a sign of compassion and care and concern and tenderness. Now make no mistake, he is for sure correcting her, but he is doing it with great care and concern for her. He says to her, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And the text doesn't tell us what those many things are that she is anxious over. But I think being married to my wife for 33 and a half years, and I think knowing me for all these years, I think it's safe to say that part of what was going on in Mary is this. What is she anxious about? She's anxious that it's not all going to get done with all these people at her house, that everyone would think poorly of her, that people might say when they leave, Can you believe when Jesus came over that Mary or Martha had piles of laundry on the floor and toothpaste, toothpaste spots on the mirror and a sink full of nasty dishes? I think it's safe to say that Martha's home and her performance in front of those people were a source of her worth and value and dignity and identity. I think Martha had an entertainment mentality that is about impressing people versus a biblical hospitality mentality that is concerned with loving the person that is in front of you in your home. An entertainment mentality really is about you. And a biblical hospitality is about God and the person that has come into your home. And then Jesus says, but one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. See, Mary knows who Jesus is. Mary remembers who Jesus is. He is the God of the universe. She is fully aware that in her presence is the Messiah, God made flesh, Emmanuel come to be among the people. And and in that, she responds to who Jesus is. She is not unlike other people we've seen in the book of Luke who, who knew who Jesus was, who remembered who Jesus was, who believed who Jesus was. They ended up in the same place as Mary, which was at the feet of Jesus. Remember John's, uh, chapters, or Luke chapter 7, the woman with the bad sexual reputation. She ended at, up at his feet. Chapter 8, the man Jesus cast the demons out of. The text tells us that when the demons left his soul, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And then later in chapter 8, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, the one whose daughter was dying. And Jesus healed his daughter that he was at the feet of Jesus, asking Jesus to heal his daughter. I want you to notice something here. This is crucial for us. These are all, including Mary, broken people who have given up trust in themselves. And they recognize and are fully aware of their need to sit at the feet of Jesus. This, what those folks are doing and what Mary's doing in our text is a humble posture of those who recognize their need in Jesus' provision for their need. It is a posture of receptivity. There is a danger in the Christian life for you and I to read the scriptures and read it not with a humble posture of receptivity, but with an arrogance and a... a, uh, just some desire to know more or to to justify myself or to to be able to judge better my neighbor not here mary is listening to what jesus says because she knows that john Chapter six says he is the only source of life, the only one who have words of life. Mary's not getting some wise sayings from a Hallmark card. She's not getting a quote of the day or or verse of the day or good luck charm of the day. She is literally drinking from the words of life coming from the very lips of God himself. She has tapped in to the source of life much like Psalms 1 speaks of. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates, or she meditates day and night. She is like a tree planted by streams of water, and its leaf does not wither. Jesus is saying, this is what matters most, and everything else gets put under this one thing. Jesus is saying, as Dr. Bach says, our service to others is best said in the context of being in constant contact with God. Jesus is saying here that everything in your life and in the Christian life is either informed by or affected by this one thing that everything you do and respond to and react to and engage in, whether it be business, your family, your home, your job, leisure, everything is informed by this one thing, sitting at the feet of Jesus. I, as you know in our strategy, I was reminded that in our strategies, Uh, for connecting uh, with a cultivating connection with God and others. The first one is what? Connecting upward with God through Bible intake and prayer. And the reason is because without that one first informing the others... Backward with our story would make no sense. Withward with the body would make no sense. Inward with our gifting would make no sense. And outward with the mission would make no sense. It is connecting upward with God and in Bible intake and prayer that informs the rest of who we are as a church. Oh, there'll be many other times to help Martha But all those things will be informed by this one thing, sitting at the feet of Jesus and intensely listening to him in a humble posture. It's called an intentional time of solitude to meet with Jesus through his word. That is the one thing that is supreme over all other things because it is better to be a listening disciple than an immaculate host. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's better to be a listening disciple than it is to be anything else. And that word intentional tells us something about us. It cannot, it has to be planned. It has to be a choice. It cannot, look, there's no osmosis. None of us drift into godliness You can't lay your head on the book like you used to try to do in fourth grade with my science book to learn chemistry. Some of you weren't even smart enough to study chemistry in fourth grade. (laughs) At least I was trying. (laughs) On a serious note, let me tell you this. I was really reminded of this this week. It's a thought that often comes in my head and it is this. The devil of hell hates you and he hates me and he wants to lull you and I to sleep with our to-do list in order to keep us from meeting with Jesus and his word. He does not, in any way, form or fashion, want all of our life ordered by this one thing, this book. So he will do anything to keep us from it. So I say to you and I say to myself, if you are too busy to open your Bible in a posture of humility to meet with Jesus, the God of the universe, via his living word on a very consistent, if not daily basis, then I say two things to you and I. You are way too busy, and secondly, you are way unaware of how much you need what he has to say and give. It is your business and your arrogance, and mine too, that would keep me from opening this word on a consistent basis. One of my favorite little books is the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis where the demons are... Sort of, we, we, Lewis gives us a picture from the demonic side of how they affect us. And in that, one of the demons says, It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Don't you think that that's not happening to you? The word of God is the primary means by which God nourishes, nurtures, renews, refreshes, and revitalizes his people. Therefore, Satan's number one goal is to keep us from the word. Mary in this text is cultivating something that her culture and our culture does not cultivate. A time and a place to meet with the living God via his living word. So, Martha and Mary, this one thing that is necessary. And then I want to take a few minutes as we wrap up to do a contrast of uh, distraction versus discipline. Distraction versus discipline. Neil Postman in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, I think had his finger on the pulse of our culture in a way that few do. And in that book, he the two very dark visions for our world by two different English authors. One is George Orwell, and the other is Aldous Huxley. Orwell says this in the book, "'Orwell feared those who would ban books. "'Huxley feared there would be no reason to ban a book, For there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would drown in passivity or narcissism. Huxley went on to say in his bestseller, A Brave New World, those who oppose tyranny have failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions because people are controlled by their desire for pleasure. And it is that that will ruin us. I want to say to us as a church, the capacity of entertainment and technology to distract us cannot be understated. We are amused to death. You feel it, and I feel it. Instead of art and technology serving its God-ordained purpose for clarifying life and helping us in life as a tool, it has been reduced to being a narcotic-like replacement for life where its only purpose for existence is to serve our passions. And here's the result of that. Here's the consequences of that. Here's the conclusion to that. Spiritual depth and maturity has been replaced with silliness. It has been replaced with amusement and the dumbing down of life. If you don't believe me, just look up some famous pastors who have nothing in depth to say about God or life or his word, and our culture has turned them into mega stars. Case in point, number one. Distraction in contrast to discipline. Not a popular word, but a beautiful word. Discipline to make time to meet with God via his word. I am so thankful for this growth plan that we have put in place over the last few weeks where we're opening the scriptures, right? That's exactly why we're doing it. I, I, I think one of the greatest arguments by Avalanche for, for motivating us to open the scriptures is to actually read what God's word says about itself. It actually speaks about itself. Second Timothy 3:16 and 17. "All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work." First Thessalonians 2:13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Acts 20, 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. And then Psalm 119, the classic chapter on God's word. How can a young man or woman keep his way pure? Question, that's a question. The answer, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I want to encourage you this morning to start for a lifetime to plan ahead, to pray a little bit, just a little bit, Lord, let me hear that I might see your glorious treasures in your word. Prepare for distractions. Put that phone in another room. Tell your children to hush their mouths as James Dobson's mother used to do with four small kids running around, put an apron over her head as she sat there with a flashlight and read her Bible. And the kids knew they'd get a whooping if they messed with mama when the apron was on her head. Plan for those distractions. Put your gospel lens on that you're coming to this word, not to earn favor with God, but to to live in and wallow in his great favor and love and acceptance already in Christ and get in the scriptures. And here's the reason. The alternative of spiritual discipline is spiritual disaster. There's one or the other. I heard someone say that people people have argued that the worst dust storm in the history of the world would be if all church members who were neglecting their Bibles dusted them off at the same time. (laughs) We laugh because it's funny, but I want to tell you something. I grew up in a home where there was a massive 20, 30-pound King James Version Bible sitting on the coffee table for our whole life. And it was never opened. Not once. Although we went to church. It was dusted once a week. And because it was never opened... That was a hellacious home to grow up in. Do you get what I'm saying there? I'll close with this. John Newton said, man cannot know, love, trust, or serve his maker unless he's renewed in his mind and heart through God's word. I want you to take a minute this morning and ask the question, So what? So what? And I think the so what is simple. Am I reading God's word on a consistent basis? Intentional time to sit at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. If you're not, God's mercies are new every morning. Start today, start tomorrow. And if you're not, you may want to ask the question, why? And it's just true for all of us. It just describes how unaware we are of our own need to hear from God. Take a minute to ask yourself a question so what?